0: Troubling Terms. You'll notice that's the entitlement that I've given to the lesson this morning that you and I might at least for the next few moments consider some of these matters, some of these interesting things I hope will be a great encouragement to all of us as we appreciate the troublesome matters that sometimes you and I might well hear. A moment ago it was read for us from Galatians chapter 1 and as you think back upon that, maybe these introductory thoughts could at least be a very mindful matter to begin us in our study this morning. The precious church, of course, as it's presented to us in the pages of the New Testament, is an unsurpassed blessing. In fact, Jesus, didn't He say, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Not even His own death was able to restrict the bars such that that church ceased to be. It began exactly when the God of heaven determined that it would. In Acts 20, 28, we appreciate there that its purchase price was the very blood the Master shed. As you think about that, its destiny is truly a monumental matter. In 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and following, it's that church, that body, that will be handed over to the Father and able to go into heaven forevermore. To say that the church then is important is is really an understatement. It's all important. No wonder, then, as you come to the bottom of that slide, it's simply a statement of fact. Ever since the day of the church's establishment, she has had to withstand difficulties and challenges. She has had to withstand that which sought to, in fact, deteriorate her. I would ask you to think, then, that these troubling times that the church, even in the first century, faced. We read about some of those issues in Corinthians, and we read about them in Jude, and we read about them in other places. And yet, those troublesome times didn't stop in the year A.D. 100, but we still face them. The church today still, in fact, must call upon itself to appreciate the existence of these things. Sometimes throughout history, those troubling issues have been a very open matter and they've been brought in such a way that they were easy to identify and easy, in fact, to withstand. But in other cases, sometimes those troubling matters are brought in a way to where they seem less severe than they really are. They seem less problematic than they really are. And often individuals, brethren, are in such a position they fall into following some of those things. How often did Paul warn the individuals of the New Testament to ever be on guard as it relates, of course, to the integrity of that truth Today, I would like to, for you to consider with me three troubling terms. And one by one, these have occupied a rather notable place in modern religion. And not only just in modern religion, in many cases, religion very close to you and me. In fact, as you come to look at them, here's the first one. I'd like to use a little bit of time along with each one to explain, if I might, The place that such an idea has even in religious topic and even in the way in which you and I might be faced to appreciate the danger that lurks behind it. The word is postmodernism. I realize that may sound like a long word. The basic idea though is very simple. As you begin at the top, it all is based upon some premises that might well be boiled down and thought about in ways like this. Those who are postmodern in their thinking basically would say that culture is the basic thoroughfare through which we interact with anything. And therefore, culture must be seen as the lens through which anything is appreciated. To put that another way, a cultural setting then would determine what's appropriate and what's right. A different cultural setting may determine the same thing to be inappropriate or wrong. If you allow culture to be the standard or at least to be the dictating feature in it, some of these next matters naturally follow from it. There's no such thing, a postmodernist would say, as absolute truth. Or even if there is, there's no way for a human to know it. Now let that sink in for just a minute. A postmodernist would say that you're wasting your time to think about there being any such thing as truth because either it doesn't exist, or even if it does, you cannot know it. A postmodernist thus would look upon things very, very differently than, say, you or I. When you think about this matter of postmodernism, you can easily appreciate that it has touched a whole host of particulars, not just religion. For instance, if you look up the word postmodern and find some various places in which it occurs. Sometimes it's used in reference to cultural things. Sometimes it's used in reference to art. Sometimes it's used in reference to religion. Our interest today, of course, is in the religion aspect. But you'll notice some additional features of it. A person who's a postmodernist would say, that all there is is each individual person has his story and his background and the features of his life. And that's certainly unique from anybody else. And so that person then in his story determines and dictates what's right for him. And similarly, that person determines by his story or her story what's basic and right and appropriate for her. You already begin to see where this is leading and how dangerous it is. The whole concept of postmodernism flies in the absolute face of what the New Testament reveals. No wonder you and I must be very mindful of it. As you'll notice, I've tried to place at the bottom some basic identifying remarks. I would ask you to notice them carefully. I know that I stand today before an audience who are not postmodernists. Those who would, in fact, use words like that, you and I are modernists. That is to say, we are a class of individuals who would rest our beliefs and our faith upon modernism. We've been discussing so far postmodernism. That is to say, it's after modernism or beyond modernism. A postmodernist looks very differently, if at all, upon the Bible. Notice this statement a postmodernist would reject the Bible as authoritative. Because, again, each person has his or her own story, and that story is what determines what's wrong or right for that person. Notice you and I would say, well, that's not so. For you and I have founded our faith upon the bedrock nature of the truth of God, and upon that truth we shall stand or fall. But the postmodernist doesn't see it that way. You'll notice that I would ask you to appreciate in passing what the Lord Himself had to say about things along this line. Remember, this concept of postmodernism, although it might be couched in the new language of the modern era like that, there were those, of course, even in ancient era, who thought along that line. In John chapter 8, verses 31 and following, Jesus was in the midst of conversation with some Jews, those who were a Pharisaic background, and to them he asked them some very pertinent questions. In the midst of all of it, verse 32, he said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Maybe it's at this point in our study today that we could at least ponder. Think about the word truth. Now, we just said a moment ago that a postmodernist does not think either the truth exists or that if it does, you cannot know it. Jesus absolutely destroyed both of those concepts in that one verse. Ye shall know the truth, the Lord said, and it's that truth that will make you free. As the Lord made that observation, think just in passing about some of the other places in which the New Testament-inspired writers were so quick to make reference to the truth. In John 18, when Pilate said, What is truth? Jesus didn't say, Well, it doesn't exist. He didn't say, well, it exists, but you cannot know it. When Pilate asked what's truth, the Lord made a statement in reference to himself and said, the truth has arrived. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul, in writing to the church there, you remember that he spoke these words to Timothy. He said, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground. Of what? The truth. The church is singularly associated with the truth, and therefore you and I recognize so mightily that truth is part and parcel to the church. Thus, you and I appreciate this postmodernist idea is very, very foreign to the scriptures. In fact, it opposes it. Let's look even further. Not only might we appreciate that. This whole basis of postmodernism takes itself to the appreciation of relativism where each individual determines what's right or wrong for him or herself. Each person determines what's best, what's sinful or not. You and I know well the Bible has nothing to do with that. The God of heaven has revealed His will and it is that will that you and I appreciate in verses like Romans 6 verses 5 and following that dictate... God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, verse 8 tells us. The identification of sin, the transgression of the law of God, and it isn't determined by where or what culture you or I might be in. Lying is always wrong, fornication is always wrong, adultery is always wrong, and there are no exceptions. A postmodernist would not agree with that. In addition to those thoughts, look at what else comes before us. You'll notice that a postmodernist might well then look upon the Bible. Now, we've already learned that they would reject it as an authoritative, unique presentation for all people. But they might be quick to say, well, each person can interpret it the way that he or she sees fit. And therefore, it speaks differently to everybody. Did we hear that now? They might be willing to refer to the Bible, but they'd be quick to say that there is no unique interpretation for every person. Rather, every person is able to interpret it as he or she sees fit and allow God to speak to that person accordingly. Well, I would ask you to think about some verses like these. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, What then did Paul mean when to that church in Thessalonica, he said, Prove all things Hold to that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil, he would say in the next passage, verse 22. When Paul made that statement, to prove all things, what reason would there be to prove all things if the Bible said everything different to everybody? doesn't seem to harmonize very easily, does it? As you can also appreciate in 2 Timothy 2.15, perhaps the passage that came most quickly to your mind and mine Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. One more time, Paul made reference to truth and affirmed that it must be rightly divided in order for one to be approved to God, an improper, incorrect division of it. Notice does not make one approved. One more time, we notice this postmodernist idea does not harmonize with the word of God. Maybe as we come to the bottom of that slide, you can easily appreciate the following simple statement that I made. More than once in the New Testament writings, we find that the same kinds of parallel issues that trouble us today by way of postmodernism also had some appearances then. In Colossians 2, verses 7 and 8, Paul admonished the brethren then to not be overtaken by those cultural matters of that day because you must be rooted and grounded in Christ. That hasn't changed at all, has it? We still must be rooted and grounded in Christ and culture does not determine what's wrong or right. Surely, in light of all those things, 1 John 4, 1 was a final reminder to those of that day just as it continues to be for us, believe not every spirit, but try the spirit whether they be of God the various natures of these discussions so far. The postmodernist idea, we might say, is gaining a fair amount of ground. Maybe you and I don't often so much still see it here, but if you travel very much or you read many writings or look much on the Internet, the kind of views expressed in postmodernism are exceedingly common. That thought of postmodernism, though, directly leads to another word, a troubling one at that. Let me ask you to consider it like this. Beyond postmodernism, might I ask you to notice the emerging church. Maybe you've heard about that. Maybe you haven't. But I would submit that probably it won't be long before all of us, if we haven't heard much about it, are likely to hear more about it. The emerging church and the movement that goes with it. Now, the emerging church, of course, you and I are familiar with lots of adjectives describing the church. In the New Testament, it's called precious. In the New Testament, it has many other wonderful adjectives. What does it mean to refer to an emerging church? Let me try to develop it somewhat quickly like this. I'd be quick to say the pace at which the emerging church is emerging is very rapid. This movement, as far as I'm able to tell, really by nature of the fullness of it, only began about 15 years ago, and it has already grown by leaps and by bounds. As you think about the emerging church, I would ask you to notice a very basic description. It is an outright protest, as you'll notice at the second statement, against that which is deemed Traditional. That might be almost enough for us to know right there. It is an open protest, an open disagreement about what one would call traditional ways that the church exists and does its business. A protest, especially stated like this. Many in that particular movement would go so far as to say the traditional church, like the one you and I know and love so much, is really an obstacle to faith, not an encouragement to it. It is really an impediment, a resistance to faith, not an encouragement of it. That's a mouthful. To view the church as an obstacle when the New Testament describes it as the blood-bought body of Christ? To view the church as an impediment to approaching God when the New Testament says it's just the opposite? When you think about the emerging church... Let me pose to you some of the most frequent ways that the Emerging Church describes the way it sees things. Those that are members of an Emerging Church would use words like, faith is a journey, a specific journey in which each person is desiring to come closer to God, and every person's journey is different, every person's journey is unique, And therefore, there's no reason to judge anybody else's journey. It's their journey. They're each on the way to God as they see Him. And in so doing, you appreciate what problems can come from that set of ideas. As you and I think about this matter, notice again the word journey says, they believe nobody is able to arrive at a completion or fullness of this. Everybody is on a search for truth and nobody has found it. That's the way the emerging church sees it. You'll notice this whole idea apparently is based rather thoroughly upon postmodernism. That's what led to the nature of this emerging church. As you'll notice, what's next? There are several observations that prompted some of the early emerging church leaders. These observations were as follows. All of us have known for quite some time the world at large appears to be moving in the direction that's less and less religious. Fewer and fewer people apparently have any interest in religion. More and more are claiming no religious affiliation whatsoever. Well, those in the emerging church first movement decided, how do we reach these people? You don't do it with traditional religion because they're not interested in that. You do it by telling them you're fine the way you are. You're on a journey to God and God will be happy with you. The emerging church is just a blanket acceptance of nearly everybody and everything. You don't try to evangelize anybody because they're fine already the way they are. That's what the emerging church would tell you. As we develop that, look at this. There are several verbs that they like to use. One of their favorites is the verb deconstruct. Now, I think all of us know what the word construct means. It means to build something. If you construct a house, you build a house. If you construct an argument, you put thoughts together and build a coherent, presentable argument. If you deconstruct something, it means you tear it apart. You tear it down. The emerging church... Is such that it seeks to deconstruct the notion of traditional religion as the Bible would present it and build up in the thoughts of the persons that are in that an appreciation for not only postmodernism, but this overall acceptance of any and everything, the emerging church. Because of all of that, you'll notice, as we noted before, evangelism, as you and I know it, is a waste of time, according to these people. Because again, every person has something beautiful about their journey to God and everybody else needs to appreciate it. And why would you ever seek to convert them to anything else? They'd be quick to say, then if a person is Catholic, let them be that way. If they're Buddhist, let them be that way. If they're of some other belief, that's fine. They're on their own journey to God. That's what the emerging church would say. This tolerance and this acceptance that's predicated on these matters again flies in every respect in the face of all these verses we've already seen today. In Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9 again Paul said, Though we, or an angel from heaven, should deliver any other gospel unto you than that which ye have received, let him be accursed. And as if one time wasn't sufficient, the God of heaven reiterated in the very next verse, as we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you've received, let him be accursed. The power and the uniqueness of the gospel is not to be tampered with nor altered by the fanciful cultural appreciations of men. Surely, the last thought on that slide... I would think is now an expected thing. So how would the emerging church view worship? Worship is viewed as an experience predicated almost exclusively on feelings. How does it make me feel? Because again, I'm on my journey. How does it make you feel? Because you're on your journey. And so worship is basically ordered, constructed in such a way that it leads to those positive, good feelings or vibrations relative to worship. Worship becomes a matter of entertainment. It becomes a matter of personal feeling and experience. When you and I think about the emerging church, perhaps in light of all those things, it brings us to note some additional thoughts. I would ask you to ponder some notes. A lesson like this one certainly has its features that I hope are informational to us, but we certainly want to make sure to intersperse in it the New Testament Scriptures as the truth is presented. Here are some notes about this whole movement. You'll notice that one of the things about this emerging church is that it has a very different view of the church. Well, consider what the New Testament says. Remember, they viewed the church as being something that really is not Is an impediment to faith. It is an obstacle. But yet in the New Testament, look at verses like this Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11. To the intent that now and to the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. That's verse 10 of Ephesians 3. It is the church that presents God's manifold, marvelous, amazing wisdom. The emerging church says that's not so. Emerging church says traditional church as we know it is a problem. And yet in Ephesians 5.27, you and I notice that that church was fashioned and created by the God of heaven, spotless and blemishless. There are no imperfections in the way God designed it. That sounds very different, doesn't it? I'm sure all of us would be quick to say we're going to put our faith, not in the emerging church, but in the faith that we see stated in the Bible, Not only that, might you notice, I've tried to highlight that one of the most favorite expressions of the emerging church is this concept of a journey. Everybody's on a journey, but nobody has arrived at the destination yet. It's true, we're all journeying to heaven. No one would argue that. But question, is it possible to know the truth? And is it possible to be convinced of it? And is it possible to live in accordance to it? Jude forevermore stated in Jude verse number 3, the fact that the faith has once for all time been delivered to the saints. There is no later revelation. There is no continuing saga, if you please. It's all here. That being said, then, a right dividing of this, a proper interpretation of the Holy Scriptures would lead one to appreciate that this emerging church is off base by a pretty good distance. Perhaps the next point, God's plan for the church is such that that blessed and beautiful body of Christ is something that the God of heaven Himself declared once it was established, it would never, ever cease to be. Daniel 2.44 makes that statement as well as Luke 1 verses 31 to 35 As you contemplate then that nature, are we now to say that suddenly in this 21st century, people have found out what the church is and nobody has known for the last 20? That's not so. The Colossians were members of the kingdom, Colossians 1.13. The Thessalonians were members of it, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. John was a member of it, Revelation 1 verses 9 and 10. The church has been in existence and those faithful brethren, you and I should look back to their example. How did they view the truth? Maybe the next thought would be this one. It's a strange thing to me that someone could hold to this emerging church idea that again condemns the basic thought of evangelism when the God of heaven through His Son said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16 verses 15 and 16. The Lord commanded evangelism. There is a message that was to be understood, known, and obeyed. And those that didn't believe and obey it were lost. It sounds to me one more time like this particular movement has so many problems with it in relation to the New Testament. Maybe as we come to the bottom of that slide. We are again reminded, are we not, in passages such as 1 Thessalonians 2.15, or rather 2 Thessalonians 2.15 about the feature and the characteristic of holding fast those traditions of faithfulness. Notice to hold fast is to grasp tightly, to cling to. Well, notice Paul says there were some traditions and they in Thessalonica were to hold tenaciously to them. You and I must hold to those good traditions too. The traditions of faithfulness and proper Bible appreciation In Romans 16, 17, the brethren in Rome were commanded to mark them which cause offenses contrary to the doctrine which you've received and avoid them. May we say the emerging church movement, postmodernism, as we've learned it so far is a serious problem for the church. If it infiltrates the church, clearly we see where it's going to lead. There's one final term I thought you would consider with me very briefly in the last part of our lesson this morning. Thirdly and finally, even more recently, more recent even than this emerging church concept, is the so-called missional idea. Sometimes, by the way, if you do a search on some internet search engine about something related to missiology or missional or something like that, you'll find millions and millions of hits Again, over about the last decade, it has become one of the favorite terms of those very much open to this movement. Missiology, missionality, the missional concept. You and I perhaps will not need to say too much about it because it's predicated in some ways upon at least part of what we've studied already. But nonetheless, it's a little different. The missional idea. It focuses very clearly, not on programs, but on people. Now, you and I would say, that's not a bad thing. Jesus was focused on people. Jesus was focused upon the souls of individuals and wanting them to know the truth. This takes a slightly different approach to that. But you and I might notice the missional idea. It sees the implementation of God's mission, and that's what the word means. Missional means the sending of God. God. And so this missional concept relates to what they view as the sending of God into the lives of individuals for the purpose of reaching individuals. But notice how some of it's developed. It's developed by highlighting again the station where a particular person is. You don't necessarily need to evangelize or convert them. You take them where they are and leave them there. But allow yourself to learn from their experiences. Maybe expressed like this. You make sure they're fed and clothed, and that's not a bad idea either. Jesus was concerned about the welfare of people, but something more important was their soul's welfare. He not only highlighted that. What about social concerns? You make sure that the other features of the physical aspect of their life are met. And again, we wouldn't say that by itself is bad, but that cannot take the precedence. Maybe finally you'll notice you take these individuals and let them be exactly where they are and be servants to God. And so in terms of this missional movement, it's not unusual to find a group of people that'll meet in in the bar. Or they'll meet maybe while they're tailgating for a football game and there's where they worship. Or they'll meet on the dance floor and call that worship. Notice, wherever they happen to be, we'll let God work in that circumstance and situation is the way they view it. Somewhat interesting to contemplate a viewpoint much like that. How often did the New Testament writers comment that those circumstances of an individual, if they're a drunkard, they've got to stop that. If they're a thief, they've got to stop that. If they are some other activity such as a fornicator, they've got to stop that. God didn't allow them just to stay the way they were and declare that all was all right. That's certainly one of the dangers that one would have to consider in the possibility of this. But with it, notice some notes at the bottom. And with that, then the lesson will be yours. Some of these notes remind us how important it is to realize the individual importance of the soul. No question about that and the necessity and understanding that goes with trying to reach those whose souls are lost. But notice, it's the, in the New Testament, it's the thoroughfare of the church through which that's done. It's not outside the church. And the church doesn't bend its will just so that they'll be all right the way they are. Never did that happen. In Acts 8 verse 4, those first century brethren... When they were scattered abroad, they went everywhere preaching the Word. And think about the places to which they came. They came to places, cities that were idolatrous, and cities that were given to licentiousness and lasciviousness. And never did they say, well, you're all right the way you are. There was a need for repentance and a need for change. Maybe in light of that, there seems to be a serious danger of devaluing the church in this missional movement. That is to say, the pristine beauty that we find in the church described in the New Testament, if we're not careful, will be easily lost in this. After all, if the church, again, is convening in a place that is a bar or a brothel or some other house of prostitution, and you're calling that a church, there's got to be a problem with that. Not only that, might we notice the purity with which the church was invested is certainly something that would be quick to be compromised. And maybe finally, we find within the pages of that wonderful New Testament, texts such as, one more time, If any other gospel is preached than that which you received, let him be accursed. As we come to the conclusion of our lesson this morning, these three terms have each occupied a very troubling note. But I'd like to end on a very positive note. It is to be thanked, of course, that we have a book that identifies error. It identifies issues and troubling problems, and it allows the the individuals who, of course, rightly divide the truth to remain on that narrow pathway that leads to everlasting life. Jesus did say, didn't He, in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 13, Enter ye into the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth into life. And few there be that find it. Don't we want to be numbered amongst the few? Don't we want to be numbered amongst those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life? As we close this lesson... We've highlighted three troubling terms, postmodernism, the emerging church, and the doctrine of missiology or the missional character. As we're aware of these things, let's remain faithful to the Lord through His Word. There might be someone in the audience today who, not for these reasons, but perhaps otherwise, you find yourself distant from God. Maybe you've never obeyed the gospel initially. Remember, it was Jesus who said, you must believe and be baptized. That's not me. That's not any other human. The Lord said that. We'd be delighted to assist you today in your response to the gospel. If we could help you by taking your confession and assisting you in baptism, we'd be happy to do that. If you have known the faithfulness of service to God, but maybe over the course of time you have allowed thoughts like these or others to trouble you, I might say that Once a person accepts some of these things we've studied today, it's very difficult to go back, but it's not impossible. If you need to come back to your first love, ground yourself again, not in what culture or what men may say, but in what the Bible declares. That's the only safe way that leads to heaven. And if today we could pray to God on your behalf for forgiveness of sins known publicly, we'd be happy to do it. Right now, a song of encouragement is going to be sung. And if we could be of any assistance in any way, won't you come? Well, together we stand and while we sing.